Hi everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and tonight in the 29th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we assemble the Fellowship of the Ring and depart from Rivendell and then lose our heavyweight match against the mighty mountain Carothras, Geography One, Fellowship Nil, in tonight's reading. It is going to be a really fun discussion, and I have a lot of slides to get to. There's a surprising amount of detail in this chapter, and we're going to talk repeatedly and, and kind of from different perspectives about Tolkien's magnificent illusion of depth. I've kind of highlighted that right in the middle of tonight's session, but we're going to basically be talking about that throughout. Tolkien manages to create with simple gestures and with an infilling of, of fine detail a sense that the world is large and complex and ambitious, and we're going to be celebrating that tonight as we embark on the first leg of our major journey. It is, as Jennifer points out, it's the Night of Nines. This is session 29, Nine Versus Nine is the title of this week's session, because, well, for curious reasons. We're going to talk a little about Elrond's decision to match the Fellowship against the Black Riders one for one when we get to that extract from the chapter, but uh, it's going to be interesting. Interesting, I think, is probably the word. Let's get started immediately with a question that comes in from Carlos. And this was such a fascinating question, and I spent so much time thinking about it this week that I wanted to highlight it right at the beginning of this chapter with a, a reckless disregard for how many slides we have to cover this week. This question from Carlos, quote, I've been reading the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien on your recommendation, and I find them fascinating. There is so much extra material and insight into the stories. They got me thinking about canonicity, though, and I'm curious how you see the canonicity of Tolkien's various works. Canonicity is, in a sense, a thoroughly modern concept. We've only really arrived at a notion of canonicity through the kind of free adaptation of pre-existing texts and the evolution of long-form texts, which exist today in a way that they didn't in Tolkien's time and at no prior point in human history. I'm thinking in particular of, of course, comic book texts and TV texts. There are interesting challenges which face us when we try to consider how true a story is. That's basically what canonicity is. That's what canonicity means. There are stories which are true, and there are stories which are somewhat less than true, and then there are stories which are untrue, all contained within the same span, contained within the same fictional universe. It's Fascinating to think about this with particular regard to J.R.R. Tolkien, because his approach to his own work was, in some senses surprisingly, and in some senses utterly unsurprisingly, scholarly. When you read Tolkien's letters, you find him engaged in a very similar kind of endeavor as we are currently engaged. You know, he is prone to a close reading of his own text when he receives questions asking, okay, so what was Aragorn doing for the first 90 years of his life? Or, hey, what's really up with Carathras? Or what's going on in the Fangorn Forest? Rather than give the kind of J.K. Rowling answer, which is, well, this is the actual answer, I just didn't have time to include that in a book, Tolkien would instead look at his own work. He would do a close reading of his own published work, and sometimes his unpublished work, and kind of try to extrapolate from that material the answer to the question. He would speculate about his own secondary creation in much the same way as we are prone to speculate about his own secondary creation. And that gives an interesting kind of reflexivity to our understanding of canonicity in Tolkien's work. Basically, it breaks down like this. I would argue that there are maybe 
I think, five tiers of, of canon status with regard to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. The first tier, of course, has to be his published work, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. That's basically it. Those works which he actually finished and signed off on and sent off to his publisher and was, in some sense, satisfied with. Those texts have to be the most canonical because they are the most complete and, crucially, the most intentional. And intentionality within the frame of canonicity is somewhat complicated, but blessedly less complicated for Tolkien than it is for most modern authors, because generally speaking, he was very careful about saying exactly what he meant and not one whit more or less. So when we're considering canonicity, the published books trump everything. Basically, if any other material conflicts with a statement in The Published Hobbit or The Published Lord of the Rings, then the statement published in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings wins out. It is more true. It is truer to his fundamental vision than anything else. That's complicated for Tolkien, and there isn't perhaps a huge gap between that A-tier canonicity and B-tier canonicity, which are those works which Tolkien either completed or mostly completed and were published posthumously. That is to say, The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales and the entire contents. Well, okay, actually, no, not the entire contents of the History of Middle-Earth, because the History of Middle-Earth series, uh, published, edited and published by his son Christopher Tolkien, is basically composed of unfinished versions of things that we will later see in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, so I would attribute kind of a B-tier canonicity to The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales, because they are true. I mean, they they speak to Tolkien's fundamental authorial intent and the integrity of his secondary creation, but where they conflict with A-tier canonical sources, that is to say, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, then we must prefer the books that were published in Tolkien's lifetime. C-tier canonicity would, 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 would be occupied by the history of Middle-earth, basically. These are unfinished, uh, fragmentary stories and earlier revisions of existing stories. And that's curious because sometimes there are incidental details in the revisions of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings which never make it to the published versions but are not directly contradictory of the published versions. So that's a kind of C tier there. And then the D tier would be Tolkien's letters and his own literary analysis, his own kind of... Um, investigation into and consideration of his secondary creation. And if you haven't read Tolkien's letters, I can't recommend them highly enough. I'm, I'm actually quoting one in tonight's session because it's just so perfect. He writes so beautifully, so thoughtfully. He writes on the subject of his own work with more care, attention, and insight than literally any other author I can think of. And I'm generally... I mean, obviously, here in the in the span of there and back again, I've discussed this a few times, I pay close attention to the text because the story is what matters. And if we can supersede the story with, you know, authorial declaim, then we shouldn't even bother reading the story. We should just go to J.K. Rowling and say, hey, J.K. Rowling, what is the point of Harry Potter? What is the message of Harry Potter? Can you tell me in the space of a tweet? Because if you can, then I probably don't need to read those books. And that's not to, you know, belittle Harry Potter. That's to kind of perhaps cast just a, just a little shade on the way that J.K. Rowling talks about her own creation and her own fictional world. Um, but Tolkien manages to write more beautifully, more artfully, and more thoughtfully about his work than any other author I can think of. And that kind of gives us a D-tier canonicity here. That is to say that there are things contained within Tolkien's letters which are 
probably true in the sense that if they don't conflict with the unpublished stories, and if they don't conflict with the posthumously published stories, and if they don't conflict with the actually published stories, then we might as well accept them as canon. That is, they might as well be representative of Tolkien's authorial intent. And then below that, we have, I mean, logically and, and consistently, I should refer to it as, as E-tier canonicity, I suppose, but the truth would be closer to F-tier, if not like X-tier canonicity. And that's all the stories that are told about The Lord of the Rings by people other than J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I'm quite a video game player, as many of you probably know. I uh, enjoy playing video games, and I enjoy playing video games set in the world of, of Tolkien's creation here. And I'm looking forward to the uh, the forthcoming sequel to uh, to Middle-earth Shadows of Mordor, or whatever that game was, was eventually called, which is an interesting game, but plays riotous and merry hell with our understanding of Tolkien's secondary creation. The sequel does not appear to be doing much better. Uh, Shelob is not a misunderstood hero, actually, in the frame of Tolkien. She is the last child of Ungoliant and is thus as close to being comprehensively evil as a being can be. We'll meet Shelob. For those of you who haven't uh, read ahead, we'll meet Shelob in the Two Towers. Um, th that kind of approach to Tolkien's storytelling, I understand the impulse, because, because of that illusion of depth, which I mentioned earlier and we'll mention again later, there is a sense of enormous space and enormous complexity. And we should be able, as people who love and revere Tolkien, to tell stories in the Second Age or to tell stories in the lands to the east of Mordor or all of these gaps in Tolkien's creation. But to do so and to do so well requires a sensitivity and an understanding of Tolkien's authorial intent, the actual purpose underlying his stories. And too often that is dismissed, particularly in the, con in, in the, in the world of video games, in the context of video games, yes. Um, <laughs> Shilob, a hero, says Nikki, is this fan fiction? Uh, I mean, kinda. I mean, kinda. The first Shadows of Mordor game was a really fun game, but as I've said before, a really fun game, really bad Tolkien, like really bad Tolkien. Uh, to have uh, this character, Talion, who uh, butchers in the course of the game, just hundreds of orcs and, and is mystically empowered. I, okay, I can't get into Shadows of Mordor. I would love to live stream Shadows of Mordor at some point and talk about it because I do think it is a fascinating and in many ways disastrous perspective on Tolkien, but it is also a really fun game. So perhaps I'll do that at some point in the future. Um, let me see here as I'm closing up this discussion. Um, yes, good, good. All right. Let's, uh, giant killer spider just misunderstood. She's evil, says Angela. Yes, yes. And Jenna Katz says, Jenna Katz, you haven't been here for forever. I'm so glad to have you back with us. Uh, Jenna says, I would like to take this time to formally curse Tolkien for putting the idea of giant spiders in people's heads. And not to do so once, Jenna, but to do so again and again and again. If you read the Silmarillion, Ungoliant is awful and, and foul and terrifying. And then if you read The Lord of the Rings, Shelob is awful and terrifying, but does at least, you know, her, her uppance does come, as it were. Uh, she is kind of 
spanked by a member of the fellowship who shall go unnamed because, you know, we don't want to spoil what happens when we get to the two towers. Um, <laughs> and then uh, if you read, oh, just reading The Hobbit, we get the spiders of Mirkwood, of course, who are actually the the um, the spawn of Shelob, as Shelob is the last child of Ungoliant. So the spiders are part of the, the brood of Shelob. And there's a dispiriting uh, passage when we get to the introduction of Shelob in The Two Towers where it, it discusses her, her spawn and her offspring going out into every glen and infesting, you know, all the various uh, parts of the country east of the Misty Mountains up to Dol Guldur and the, the vastness of the of, of the Mirkwood, which is, yeah, not great. Not great. I'm not terribly arachnophobic, I have to say, but yeah, the giant creepy spiders, pretty bad. And one of the most devastatingly effective elements of the Two Towers, I thought. I love what they did with Shelob in the Two Towers, just, just visually, representationally. Just, wow, really, really terrifying. Um, okay. That, I think, will do it for our discussion of, of canonicity. Basically, that's how it works out. Published stories, Trump unpublished stories, Trump unfinished stories, Trump letters and commentary, Trump, you know, other stories written about Tolkien's world by people who aren't Tolkien, basically. That's how it works for me. Your mileage may vary, in fact. And even within the frame of the Silmarillion and the unfinished tales, there is a variable amount of, of canonicity there. You know, the Aina is pretty much 100% canon, but there are parts of the Valaquenta which suggest that perhaps it isn't. And then when you get into the, the Quenta itself, the bulk of the Silmarillion, um, there are some stories which are super 100% canonical and some which are, well, maybe not. This doesn't seem to quite fit. And there are issues of parentage and lineage throughout the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales, which kind of conflict with each other. And then, of course, you get into trouble because then you've got two posthumously published and incomplete texts competing with each other. So, you know, good luck. Good luck trying to resolve that snarl of, of continuity there. At least we're not dealing with Star Wars, you guys. It could be much worse, is what I'm saying. Um, good. Thank you all so much for joining me tonight. I just realized I didn't do my typical introduction where I thank you all and kind of run through the list here in, in the YouTube chat. But you know what? It's probably too late to do that now. There are so many of you here tonight. I'm very, very glad to have you all. We have 46 watching live right now, which is... Uh, <laughs> Shane says, oh no, a discussion on canonicity in the section where stone giants are supposed to be. Hey, stone giants, isn't it interesting that when we get to Carathras, we get basically a recapitulation of the sequence from The Hobbit without any mention of stone giants. This is like, well, you know what, we'll talk about it later. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it, I guess. Yes. Good. All right. Let's get into our reading tonight with our first slide. This comes right from the beginning of the chapter. This is our discussion of Sam's punishment? Sam's reward? Well, we'll see how that works out. Later that day, the hobbits held a meeting of their own in Bilbo's room. Merry and Pippin were indignant when they heard that Sam had crept into the council and had been chosen as Frodo's companion. It's most unfair, said Pippin. Instead of throwing him out and clapping him in chains, everyone goes and rewards him for his cheek. Rewards, said Frodo. I can't imagine a more severe punishment. You're not thinking what you were saying. Condemned to go on this hopeless journey? A reward? Yesterday I dreamed my task was done and I should rest here a long while, perhaps for good. I don't wonder, said Mary, and I wish you could, but we are envying Sam, not you. If you have to go, then it will be a punishment for any of us to be left behind, even in Rivendell. We've come a long way with you and been through some stiff times. We want to go on. That's what I meant, said, said Pippin. We hope it's ought to stick together, and we will. I shall go unless they chain me up. There must be someone with intelligence in the party." "'Then you certainly will not be chosen, Peregrine Took,' said Gandalf, looking in through the window which was near the ground. "'But you are all worrying yourselves unnecessarily. Nothing is decided yet.' 
Those of you who have read ahead, not to next week's reading, but to the following reading, two weeks from tonight, might think of the ultimate consequence of bringing Peregrine Took on this journey. Gandalf will argue for the inclusion of Merry and Pippin in the party. No, no, no. They are not wise, but they are loyal. This is going to be Gandalf's argument, and that's wonderful. But ultimately, the inclusion of Pippin has dire consequence for Gandalf himself, though even more ultimately, perhaps, great consequence for Gandalf himself. We are, as ever, caught up in this divine wind from the West, the wind that the dwarves described way back in The Hobbit, this wind that moves from West to East and reaches the Lonely Mountain and then ascends upward, this wind that seems to bespeak prophecy, that seems to represent whatever force it is, whatever chance if chance you call it, that controls the fates and the destinies of these characters. We must note, too, the... Um, the echo here from the second chapter of the first book, right after Sam is caught eavesdropping and Gandalf drags him in through the window and demands further information, we get this brief passage. Sam fell on his knees trembling. Get up, Sam, said Gandalf. I have thought of something better than that, something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening. You shall go away with Mr. Frodo. That seems to be kind of echoed here. The idea of going with Frodo as a simultaneous punishment and reward, that Gandalf is punishing Sam by forcing him on this journey, even though at that point, unknown to Gandalf, potentially, possibly, it isn't entirely clear, but unknown to Gandalf, according to the text, at least according to a literal reading of the text, Sam is already involved in the conspiracy, which will later be unmasked. Sam is, at that point, reporting to Merry and Pippin Frodo's doings and Frodo's plans for leaving the Shire. So the punishment for eavesdropping on Frodo in order to protect him is being sent with him. And here we see another version of that. I don't wonder, said Merry, and I wish you could, but we are envying Sam, not you. If you have to go, then it will be a punishment for any of us to be left behind, even in Rivendell. We have come a long way with you and been through some stiff times. We want to go on. The loyalty of hobbits, the, the company of hobbits is inspiring as ever. Yes. Good. So we're already kind of laying the seeds here for our discussion of the Fellowship, for the company that will accompany Frodo on his great and perilous quest. And even here, you know, remember in the last chapter, right at the end of, of the Council of Elrond, Frodo speaks with a voice that it is not his own. He speaks without knowing why he says these words, you know, saying, I will take the reins, though I do not know the way. And now we're already discussing the companions that will be sent with him. You're not thinking what you were saying, he says here. Condemned to go on this hopeless journey, a reward? Yesterday I dreamed my task was done and I could rest here a long while, perhaps for good. We should note, because this chapter, brief though it is, actually covers two months, in excess of two months, actually closer to three months of real life time for the Hobbits and for the Fellowship. But this is picking up right after the end of the Council of Elrond. We begin there later that day, the Hobbits held a meeting of their own in Bilbo's room. Let's move forward to uh, to the thought of waiting and what Frodo's time here in Rivendell is going to be like. Oh, said Sam gloomily, we'll just wait long enough for winter to come. That can't be helped, said Bilbo. 
It's your fault, partly, Frodo, my lad, insisting on waiting for my birthday, a funny way of honouring of honoring it, I can't help thinking. Not the day I should have chosen for letting the SBs into Bag End. But there it is. You can't wait now until spring, and you can't go till the reports come back. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. But that, I am afraid, will be just your luck. I am afraid it will, said Gandalf. We can't start until we found out about the riders. I thought they were all destroyed in the flood, said Mary. You cannot destroy ringwraiths like that, said Gandalf. The power of their master is in them, and they stand or fall by him. We hope that they were all that they were all unhorsed and unmasked, and so made for a while less dangerous, but we must find out for certain. In the meantime, you should try and forget your troubles, Frodo. I do not know if I can do anything to help you, but I will whisper this in your ears. Someone said that intelligence will be needed in the party. He was right. I think I shall come with you. So great was Frodo's delight at this announcement that Gandalf left the window sill where he had been sitting and took off his hat and bowed. I only said I think I shall come. Do not count on anything yet. In this matter, Elrond will have much to say, and your friend, the Strider. Which reminds me, I want to see Elrond. I must be off. So there is going to be a delay while we gather information, while we try to secure our knowledge of the Black Riders and of the forces of Sauron and of the path of whatever fellowship may form around Frodo and Sam at this point. And we are going to be delayed. As Bilbo says, Frodo insists on waiting for his birthday. Note that Bilbo doesn't refer to our birthday here, which Frodo consistently does. Insisting on waiting for my birthday, a funny way of honoring it, I can't help thinking. Not the day I should have chosen for letting the SBs into Bag End. And there is something... There is something very insulting about referring to the Sackville Bagginses as the SBs, which I love quite a lot. Quite a lot there. But there it is. You can't wait now till spring, and you can't go till the reports come back. And then he gives us this brief passage about winter. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. This has every indication that it is composed by Bilbo. That is to say that it is presented to us in the Hobbit form. This is Hobbit poetry. When winter first begins to bite and stones crack in the frosty night, when pools are black and trees are bare, tis evil in the wild to fare. This is that regular rhythm that we associate with Hobbit poetry, which makes me think that Bilbo actually composed this himself. Though it was, interestingly... um, It was interestingly, or it seems to have been, I should say, inspired by uh, Love's Labour's Lost, the the Shakespeare play. There's a passage in Act 5, Scene 2 of Love's Labour's Lost, which, curiously, Tolkien actually had as a set text in his final examinations at Oxford in 1915. That is to say that in order to graduate Oxford, Tolkien had to study Love's Labour's Lost and write about it. And contained within that play, we have this passage. When icicles hang by the wall, and Dick the shepherd blows his nail, and Tom bears logs into the hall, and milk comes frozen home in pail, when blood is nipped and ways be foul, then nightly sings the staring owl. And again, we have that same evocation there of uh, of uh, of winter in all of its dark aspect. Yeah, it's a really effective piece of poetry, I have to say. I like it a lot. Tom asks in the YouTube chat, the Strider, is it a title? No, it doesn't seem to be. Strider is his name, his nickname, at least. But I like the way that Gandalf refers to him here. Your friend, the Strider. I mean, 
He is given that name because he strides, thus describing him as the strider is not, you know, inappropriate. And we know that, you know, strider is given to him because of the length of his stride, because he is also referred to as Longshanks. And in fact, right at the end of tonight's reading, we will get the confirmation that Aragorn is the tallest member of the party, that Boromir is second in height to Aragorn. According to Tolkien's letters, Aragorn actually comes in at a statuesque six foot six. That's pretty tall, you know, inheritor of the blood of Numenor and all that. Uh, Aragorn is supposed to be six foot six. Boromir, a, a perfectly normal, compared to that, six foot four, which happens to be my height. So I associate myself with Boromir quite a lot in that regard. Um, but yes, Strider is called uh, Strider because of the strides that he takes. That's why he also has the uh, much more insulting nickname Longshanks, meaning, you know, long legs. Um, let me catch up here with the YouTube chat. You guys are <laughs> chatty tonight, chatty tonight. Uh, okay, I think I'm caught up with everything. Um, good. Yes, uh, Tom asks, if that is the case, shouldn't it be the Strider, capital T, capital S, not the with a lowercase t? I could be wrong in that. Um, that's, that's simply convention, really. Um, consistency is more important in that regard than, than you know, any kind of outright rule. Um, there are certainly medieval texts and, and post-medieval texts, Georgian texts and, and Regency texts, where you can find references to the king, you know, in the middle of a sentence, the king will be capitalized, capital T, capital K. Um, and oftentimes in modern language, we will simply drop the capitalization of the T because the king is the important thing. You know, the, the actual title itself is what matters and the is just an attendant, you know, uh, an attendant word there to pull that in. Glorfin David says, six foot six, he's a great Dane. Well, he's a great, you know, Arnorian, post-Numenorian, Dunedine, certainly. Wait, was Great Dane a pun on Great Dunedine? Because if it was Glorfin David, I applaud you just, just outright. I, I bow to you as Gandalf bows to Frodo following his, uh, his implicit praise. Yes, good. That's interesting. Jackie says, uh, the Strider. It's as if he's elevating even this casual title, which is, as she reminds us, a demeaning title of Aragorn's. That's really good. I like that reading very much, and that's completely consistent with Gandalf's approach to, to Aragorn. Yes, your friend, the Strider, here in this place, in this context, in the wake of the Council of Elrond, where Aragorn has been unmasked, you know, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir to Isildur, now he is the Strider. I like that a lot, Jackie. That's a, that's a really good pull. Yes. Good. Um... And old Toby asks here in the YouTube chat, how tall were the Numenorians? Uh, tall. Of, of great stature. Even Aragorn is, is you know, a diminished remnant of the Numenorean line. Elendil the Tall was supposed to be uh, in excess of seven feet tall. Now, admittedly, his name was Elendil the Tall. So that suggests that he was, you know, taller than average, I guess. But yes, these were men of great and formidable stature. Um, good. All right. Let's, <laughs> real tall, says Jackie, fair, <laughs> absolutely fair. Um, Angela asks, unhorsed and unmasked, why would that slow them down? Does it take energy for them to manifest? Um, well, it's a little complicated because our understanding of the Nazgul will evolve as we move through the book, which, as I've said before, I don't attribute to an inconsistency in Tolkien's writing. Rather, I attribute it to a strengthening of Sauron's position. That is to say that the more powerful Sauron is, the more powerful each individual Black Rider is. But 
We know that they are invisible, as we'll get in a couple of pages' time, in fact. We know that they are invisible without the benefit of their cloaks, and we know that without their mounts, they move more slowly. You remember the scene when the, the bundle of rags descends from the horse and is sniffing and snuffling along the ground um, before we escape into the old forest? That seems to be a similar kind of experience, so presumably they would move quite slowly indeed. Um, though, as we've been told, their horses are mortal. They don't even run like, you know, shadow facts. They're just trained horses. So presumably they're not that much faster on these mortal, frail horses than they would be moving on their own accord. But I'm not entirely sure why being invisible makes them less dangerous. That seems to me to be kind of contrary to our understanding of the Nazgul. Well, except, I suppose, that the Nazgul up until this point, particularly during their time in the Shire, have been, and, and in Bree too, have been relying on manipulation, have been relying on a kind of um, oppression of those mortals around them. So perhaps that is less effective if the Nazgul themselves cannot be seen. But yeah, presumably they are at some, uh, in some way diminished here. Um, are we getting some, some clarification here? Dunedain is plural, isn't it? Says Karen. Uh, Dunedain uh, is this, as Jenna confirms here, Dunedain is the single. Yes. Good. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Yes, Tom says, I've always assumed they moved slow in the scene due to the fact that they were hunting versus they had to move that slow. It's a little ambiguous. We just don't know. I mean, if they were as rapid as horses during normal movement, then why would they use horses, I suppose? So they can't move faster than that. Presumably, they use the horses to facilitate their mobility. Thus, without their horses, they're going to move more slowly, I guess, even if we assume that their power is in no way kind of hindered or limited during during this phase. Um <laughs> uh, okay, Galadrebecki first, who says, that image of the bundle of rags sniffing and snuffling reminds me of Voldemort drinking unicorn blood in Harry Potter book one. Me too. It is another weird moment where I am forced to remind myself that J.K. Rowling never read The Lord of the Rings, or at least didn't read The Lord of the Rings prior to writing Harry Potter. It is surprising how many crossovers there are, how many points of similarity there are between these two books. Uh, and Johnny has, uh, Johnny's virtual journey's random question, what is Alistair's natural hair color? My natural hair color is brown, like an unremarkable shade of brown. But as you can see, there's not much of it around right now. You can tell by my eyebrows, I suppose. Um, good, good. Sometimes if you tune into a live broadcast, you'll see me with something of a beard. But not tonight, you guys, not tonight. Um, good. All right, let's push on into our... <laughs> goodness me, we're making no progress at all. As can be expected. Here we go. Let's move on to time passing in Rivendell. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead, but such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. So the days slipped away, as each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear. But autumn was waning fast. Slowly the golden light faded to pale silver, and the lingering leaves fell from the naked trees. A wind began to blow chill from the misty mountains to the east. The hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky and put to flight all the lesser stars. But low in the south one star shone red. Every night as the moon waned again, it shone brighter and brighter. Frodo could see it from his window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. So, 
Time passes in Rivendell. And what I want to focus on here is not just the effect that this has on the hobbits, but the ways in which this effect are absolutely representative of what is virtuous about Rivendell. Such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. Well, what is the virtue of Rivendell? That, that lifts this fear and anxiety. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. That seems to be part of the, part of the virtue of Rivendell, as it were. That This is not an attendant detail about the Hobbit's experience. This is explanation of the virtue of Rivendell. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Later in the chapter, Bilbo will say that he has trouble keeping track of how many days have passed in Rivendell because time loses some of its meaning. The past and the future are not forgotten, but the present is emphasized. The present becomes more important. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. These are not, it seems to me, unrelated thoughts. There is not a separate magic that is generating within the breast of the hobbits health and hope. And also, coincidentally, they are content with each good day as it came. It seems as though that contentment, that pleasure in every meal and in every word and song, that is what is generating the health and the hope. There is a kind of presence here in Rivendell. You are here and you are less elsewhere. And that seems to be very consistent with Tolkien's perspective on on virtue, on happiness, on the kinds of cultures and communities which are to be celebrated and which are to be, you know, striven for, striven toward. As Skipa says in the YouTube chat, it's like being in fairy. You lose sense of time and things move differently. Yes, absolutely. But again, much like fairy, you lose sense of time, not because time is different, not because the past or the future is taken from you, but because the present is simply more is simply more. The present is more vibrant. The present, I suppose, I can put it like this and no more plain, the present is more present than it is in other places. And so the days slip away. Each morning dawned bright and fair, and each evening followed cool and clear, but autumn was waning fast. Slowly the golden light faded to pale silver, the lingering leaves fell from the naked trees, a wind begin to, uh, began to blow chill from the misty mountains to the east, the hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky. Time really is passing. The hunter's moon is uh, the full moon which follows after the harvest moon. The harvest moon is the moon, the full moon which falls closest to the autumnal equinox, uh, which is usually around the end of uh, the end of October, or sometimes the first week. Uh, sorry, okay. Let me rephrase that so that it's a little more clear and a little more careful. The harvest moon is the full moon which falls around the autumnal equinox. That's usually the end of September. Then the, the hunter's moon is the next full moon after that, which falls at the end of October or the first week of November. So weeks are already passing as we're lingering here in, in Rivendell. The hunter's moon term, by the way, is, um, is actually fascinating because we've talked before about Tolkien's <laughs> curious predilection when it comes to language. 
Tolkien hated using any word which entered the English language after the year 1500. As far as he was concerned, the only good words were old words. So he would go back to, you know, pre-1500 for his vocabulary. And we see that in instances between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings with the, the dropping of the word tobacco and the inclusion of the phrase pipeweed, you know? He switches out the more modern word, the crucially more American word, in favor of an older kind of developed Anglo-Saxon term that's more consistent with his kind of vocabulary. That's great, you know, and, and 1500 was a bare minimum. You know, the year 1500 was a bare minimum. He preferred words which entered English prior to the Norman conquest. He was skeptical of, of all of these French words. Gladrebecki says, what is the significance of 1500? Uh, basically, the 16th century was a major turning point in the development of English. It was when English began to incorporate more freely and more progressively elements of other Romance languages. We expanded English, I say we, English vocabulary expanded dramatically in the 16th century. So pure English was kind of prior to the 16th century. And as I say, he preferred terms prior to the Norman conquest. But here he uses a term that isn't just post 16th century, isn't just post 1500, but is in fact, by Tolkien standards, really quite modern, because the term hunter's moon didn't enter English until the early years of the 18th century, and fascinatingly, seems to have come into English from Native American languages. It seems to be a direct English translation of the Native American concept of the hunter's moon. Thus, Tolkien has almost inadvertently, it would seem, incorporated a new Americanism, a, a, a neologistic Americanism here into his frame, which... I guess is only interesting or cute if you happen to to you know be very fond indeed of Tolkien's oddness when it comes to the specificity of his language. Um, the Hunter's Moon also, by the way, hanging in the sky, uh, oftentimes red because of the the time of year. So it is oftentimes referred to as a blood moon or a sanguine moon too. It's a pretty powerful uh, image there, and it's an image which is matched in the evocation of this red star to the south, which astronomically may well be Mars, but metaphorically links us to Barad-dûr. It links us to the growing presence of Sauron. It links us to this, this watchful point in the sky that keeps an eye on Rivendell. It can't be Barad-dûr, like, quite, because, of course, Barad-dûr can't see through the Misty Mountains to Rivendell or even, you know, the mountains surrounding Mordor, but nonetheless, it is, you know, a point of connection there to Sauron and the the kind of ominous presence of this light in the sky to the south. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, good, good. Let me scroll back, see if I missed anything. Everything seems to be working. Um, hmm. Prisoner AB234, which if that is a reference, it's a reference I'm afraid that I don't get, but it's a very good username nonetheless. Uh, These places semi-partitioned from the troubles in the rest of Middle-earth make the bravery and sacrifice of the fellowship even more poignant, taking responsibility when the choice to dip out exists. Well, in part, yes, I think you're completely right. There are still places of sanctuary. There are still places of, of light and of safety and of peace within the frame of Middle-earth, but only for now. There's no question that Rivendell would fall if Sauron were successful, not even necessarily if he regained the One Ring, but if he just grew in his power sufficiently, then Gondor would fall and Rohan would fall and the wilds to the east of the mountain would fall, Erebor would fall. And ultimately, those forces would cross the Misty Mountains or come up through the, the gap of Rohan into Eregion and Rivendell too would fall. Ultimately, you know, everything, even the Shire itself would fall before the shadow of Sauron. So there is a sense, I think, in which 
it is heroic, I think, that our, our, our primary characters here are mindful of the threat even when they themselves are safe. That is virtuous, that is heroic. But there is no sense in which they are completely safe. You know, the only completely safe thing to do would be to go to the Grey Havens far in the West and depart for the Undying Lands. Like, get out of Dodge, get out of Middle-earth. Then you would be safe, in a sense. And, of course, that's an option that is only open to the elves. So, yeah. Glorfin David asks a really interesting question. If Sauron did capture Middle-earth, what would he actually do with it? Um, well, Sauron desires... Power. He desires power, and he desires glory, and he desires, you know, domination. Those are the um, domination. Perhaps in particular would uh, would be the most important element of Sauron's plan here. The desire to dominate others, the desire to kind of exercise your will and to supersede the will of others. That is almost, almost, you know, absolutely across Tolkien's entire body of work. That is almost absolutely the worst thing that you can do, that you can want. Domination is the worst. So he wants the subservience of all the free peoples of Middle-earth, all the formerly free peoples of Middle-earth, yeah. It's, it's unclear whether he has a grander plan than that, but of course, Sauron is... There is... <laughs> there is a somewhat fair uh, criticism of the Lord of the Rings, I suppose, in that Sauron is not a sophisticated or complex uh, modern villain. And funnily enough, I just talked about this exact point uh, just a couple of days ago when I was recording a Disney villain deathmatch for Common Room Radio with uh, Sarah Kate Pizant and Elizabeth Stevens. I was talking about the differences between great antagonists and great villains. Great antagonists are oftentimes the hero of their own story. That is to say that they believe that what they are doing is right. And we can see from our privileged position that what they are doing is not, in fact, right. What they are doing is wrong and evil and destructive and awful. But the great villains have no such misunderstanding of their own position. They know that they are evil and they are pursuing that with uh, an unparalleled ferocity. That is what makes Sauron evil. Saruman, even at this point, may believe himself to be the hero of his own story. He may believe that what he is doing is right. He may still believe that he is trying to limit the power of Barador, the power of the shadow. He may believe that he is trying to, you know, wrest control. If he can find the One Ring, which presumably is why he was searching the Anduin for it, if he can wrest control of the One Ring, then he can rival Sauron and take it down. Perhaps he is uh, an object lesson here in what happens when you fall to that, that arrogance and that hubris. Maybe. But Sauron doesn't believe that he's the hero. Sauron knows that he is the villain. He wants absolute domination. And that, while I think it is a fair criticism of the Lord of the Rings that our villain is not more developed, that he doesn't have, you know, a philosophical agenda, that he isn't trying to say, no, 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 but the world would just be better if I were in charge and this would be better for everyone. You know, the real problem is free will, though. And the real problem is, you know, <laughs> the real problem is, is uh, agrarian lifestyle. So what I'm going to do is industrialize and things will be better for it. No. There's no justification like that. He wants to dominate because that is, in a very powerful sense, what he is. Um, good. Yes, as Angela says, Sauron is not misunderstood. He is evil. Yeah. Good. 
All right. Let's, um, yeah, and, and Tom says, I don't know about the great villains. No, they're evil. I guess maybe not the great villains um, or, or not all of the great villains. That is to say that it is not a necessary property of a great villain that you know yourself to be evil. And it is not, you know, the inverse is also untrue. Uh, you are not a, a great villain simply by virtue of knowing that you are evil. But there is in the kind of classic fairy tale sense, villains as opposed to antagonists, as opposed to, you know, opponents, as opposed to like, you know, a, a more kind of developed narrative function, villains tend to know that they are evil and tend to embrace that evil, you know? Um, okay. Skipa says, interestingly, so often I feel the true evil in fantasy stories is a metaphor more than a real threat. That's, that's fascinating. Yes. Yes. And Angela says, Sauron is the perfect villain, villain for the Lord of the Rings. I completely agree. I mean, we must remember that literally from the creation of the universe, Tolkien's entire world is set up to, to, uh, to represent and to embody and to inform and to illuminate this specific conflict. This is the point. No other villain could be as effective as Sauron for this specific story because it is about good and evil and it is about greatness and power versus smallness and will, I suppose. Yeah. Good. All right, let's push on and uh, get to our updates here. As I share this slide with you all. The hobbits had been nearly two months in the house of Elrond, and November had gone by with the last shreds of autumn, and December was passing when the scouts began to return. Some had gone north beyond the springs of the Horwell into the Ettenmoors. Others had gone west with the help of Aragorn and the rangers, had searched the lands far down the Grey Flood as far as Tharbad, where the old north road crossed the river by a ruined town. Many had gone east and south, and some of those had crossed the mountains and entered Mirkwood, while others had climbed the pass at the sources of the Gladden River, and had come down into, into Wilderland, and over the Gladden Fields, and so at length had reached the old home of Radagast at Rosgobel. Radagast was not there, and they had returned over the high pass that was called the Redhorn Gate. The sons of Elrond, Eladon, and Elrahir were the last to return. They had made a great journey, passing down the Silver Lode into a strange country, but of their errand they would not speak to any save to Elrond. In no region had the messengers discovered any signs or tidings of the riders or other servants of the enemy. Even from the eagles of the Misty Mountains they had learned no fresh news. Nothing had been seen or heard of Gollum, but the wild wolves were still gathering and were hunting again far up the great river. Three of the black horses had been found at once drowned in the flooded ford. On the rocks of the rapids below it, searchers discovered the bodies of five more, and also a long black cloak, slashed and tattered. Of the Black Riders, no other trace was to be seen, and nowhere was their presence to be felt. It seemed that they had vanished from the north. Eight out of the nine are accounted for, at least,' said Gandalf. "'It is rash to be too sure. Yet I think that we may hope now that the ringwraiths were scattered and have been obliged to return as best they could to their master in Mordor, empty and shapeless. If that is so, it will be some time before they can begin the hunt again.' Of course, the enemy has other servants, but they will have to journey all the way to the borders of Rivendell before they can pick up our trail. And if we are careful, that will be hard to find. But we must delay no longer. So, the horses of the Black Riders have fallen, and we find a long black cloak slashed and tattered, and I'm pretty certain that the slash there indicates that this is the cloak of the leader of the Nine. This is the cloak of the Witch King of Angmar, the, the first of the Nazgul, because that slash is the slash that Frodo caused back at Weathertop. Presumably it passed also through the cloak that Aragorn found into the robe beneath. That's my reading of it, at least, but we know that 
At most, one horse survived and the riders have been scattered. <laughs> As Jenna says, we must delay no longer. Waits a week. Yes. We're, you know, we're, we're going to get everyone together. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be just fine. Yes. <laughs> and Karen says, you can see Sauron saying, do I need to get you guys new clothes again? Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> they have to go back. They have to slink back and say, uh, so anyway, about the Hobbit. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so we get here the first of several passages in this chapter that is going to expand our understanding of the world. We go north beyond the springs of the Horwell into the Edmores, west with the help of Aragorn and the Rangers, far down the Grey Flood as far as Tharabad, where the old North Road crossed the river by a ruined town. A ruined town about which we know nothing. These are just hints and suggestions that give that illusion of depth, the illusion that the world is wider and deeper than we would otherwise think. Uh, many had gone east and south. Some had crossed the mountains and entered Mirkwood. Others had climbed the pass at the source of the Gladden River, come down to the Wilderland and over the Gladden Fields. We're getting detail after detail after detail, all of which are completely consistent, of course, with the, uh, the map of Middle-earth. And then we get, we, we draw back to the nine. Eight out of the nine are accounted for, at least, said Gandalf. Well, eight out of the nine horses. We can be sure that the Black Riders aren't riding around, so presumably they are skulking back to Mordor, but we don't know what that actually means. We don't know how swiftly they can move or how long it will take. Yeah. Okay, I am running very long, so we're going to push right on to the next slide here. And this is the formation of the Company of the Ring. The Company of the Ring shall be nine, and the nine walkers shall be set against the nine riders that are evil. With you and your favorite servant, Gandalf will go, for this shall be his great task and maybe the end of his labors. For the rest, they shall represent the other free peoples of the world, elves, dwarves, and men. Legolas shall go for the elves, and Gimli, son of Glowin, for the dwarves. They are willing to go at least to the passes of the mountains and maybe beyond. For men, you shall have Aragorn, son of Arathorn, for the ring of Isildur concerns him closely. Strider, cried Frodo. Yes, he said with a smile. I ask leave once again to be your companion, Frodo. I should have begged you to come, said Frodo, only I thought you were going to Minas Tirith with Boromir. I am, said Aragorn, and the sword that was broken shall be reforged ere I set out to war. But your road and our road lie together for many hundreds of miles. Therefore Boromir will also be in the company. He is a valiant man. There remain two more to be found, said Arond. These I will consider. Of my household I may find some that it seems good to me to send." "'But that will leave no place for us!' cried Pippin in dismay. "'We don't want to be left behind. We want to go with Frodo!' "'That is because you do not understand and cannot imagine what lies ahead,' said Elrond. "'Neither does Frodo,' said Gandalf, unexpectedly supporting Pippin. "'Nor do any of us see it clearly. "'It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go, "'but they still wish to go, or wish that they dared, and be shamed and unhappy.' I think, Elrond, that in this matter it will be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. Even if you choose for us an elf lord such as Glorfindel, he could not storm the Dark Tower, nor open the road to the fire by the power that is in him. Let us trust to friendship rather than to great wisdom. Pippin, you're, you're not wise. You're not wise, buddy. It's okay. But friendship... That is the, the Hobbit superpower. That is, this is one of the few ways in which the Hobbits are basically like, you know, Sailor Moon. 
this is you know one of the few crossovers there between uh, between Sailor Moon and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. But friendship is their superpower, and that's as it should be. So here we go. The company of the ring shall be nine, and the nine walkers shall be set against the nine riders that are evil. With you and your faithful servant, Gandalf will go, for this shall be his great task and maybe the end of his labors. Okay, this shall be his great task and maybe the end of his labors. We've discussed before who Gandalf is. Gandalf was one of the Astari. He is one of the Astari. He was one of the Maya of Valinor that was sent into Middle-earth specifically to battle Sauron. For this shall be his great task and maybe the end of his labors. Because if you succeed, he'll be done. If you succeed, his role will actually be finished. He will have fulfilled the goal that was given to him, the task that was placed upon him, the task that he willingly undertook. So nine walkers against nine riders. Why nine? Well, it seems symmetrical. It seems as though Elrond is listening again to that inner voice or that echo of the song or is simply exercising his great wisdom and his great sense of lore in this decision. And it's interesting that Gandalf, even at the beginning of the chapter, defers to Elrond. Elrond will have much to say about this, he says. We're going to trust the lore master. We're going to trust the wisest elf that we know to set in motion this plan. For the rest, they shall represent the other free peoples of the world, elves, dwarves, and men. This shall be a a unification as the last alliance was a unification of elves and men. You know, the last time we fought Sauron, we did it with all the free peoples of Middle-earth coming together. And now we're going to do so again. But as we are diminished, we will put together not a great host, not a mighty army, but a fellowship, a small group that can move swiftly without the notice of the enemy. So Legolas shall be for the elves and Gimli son of Glowin for the dwarves. It's interesting that we pick Legolas rather than Glorfindel or one of the other elves because Legolas is representative not of the elves of Rivendell, not of, you know, the, the great elf lords that we have seen born of the first age, if not before the first age, born, you know, in, in the, the noontime of Valinor. Um, rather than that, we're going to pick a relatively young elf, uh, the elf son of Thranduil, you know, the, the king of, of the elven realm in Mirkwood. We're going to pick Legolas, and we're going to pick Gimli, son of Glowin. We're picking the young. We're choosing here the, the youthful, with the possible exception of Aragorn and Gandalf, I guess. For men, you shall have Aragorn, son of Arathorn, for the Ring of Isildur concerns him greatly. Well, actually, he's going to Minas Tirith with Boromir. There, the, the, sword that was broken shall be re, uh, the sword that was broken shall be reforged ere I set out to war. But your road and our road lie together for many hundreds of miles. Therefore, Boromir will also be in the company. He is a valiant man. I love the simplicity of he is a valiant man. Aragorn and Boromir have already butted heads more than once, and they're going to continue to do so, but Aragorn is always generous and honest in his appreciation of, of, uh, of Boromir here. Um, that's good. Okay, so we get two possible explanations here. Um, the first comes from Heroes and Bards, who says, maybe because Legolas would know the terrain better? There's no indication that Legolas has been south, south of Mirkwood. If we were going east, you know, out across the wild, past, you know, Beorn's house, through the Mirkwood, back out to Erebor, then Legolas would be all about that. He knows that terrain. But as far as we know, he hasn't ventured that far south. I like uh, Jackie Boatman's explanation here. Legolas is like, pick me, I gotta make up for Gollum's escape somehow. Yeah, I like that quite a lot. I like that quite a lot. Good. 
<laughs> As Becca says, my little fellowship friendship is magic. That's the crossover that I want. Uh, if you can all in the YouTube chat just come up with the uh, pony names and crucially cutie marks for all of the fellowship, that would be pretty great. Uh, we know that Boromir has his little horn there on his flank. That would be awesome. And of course, I'm being somewhat glib, but if you guys haven't seen My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, you really should. It's a very good show. Uh, okay, so we are ready to go. Now we have our fellowship. We have Frodo and we have Sam and we have Gandalf. We have Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn. We have Boromir and we have Merry and we have Pippin. Friendship more than wisdom. We should say that this takes place on the 18th of December in the Third Age year 3018, almost two months since the Council of Elrond. Almost two months have passed since we decided that this was super urgent and this is the doom that we must deem and all of those other conversations. Almost two months in the waiting here before the Fellowship itself is forged. And speaking of forging... The sword of Elendil was forged anew by elvish smiths, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars set beneath the crescent moon and the rayed sun, and about them was written many runes, for Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen, and Aragorn gave it a new name, and called it Anduril, Flame of the West." Aragorn and Gandalf walked together or sat speaking of their road and the perils they would meet, and they pondered the storied and figured maps and books of lore that were in the house of Elrond. Sometimes Frodo was with them, but he was content to lean on their guidance, and he spent as much time as he could with Bilbo. In those last days the hobbits sat, the hobbits sat together in the evening in the Hall of Fire, and there among many tales they heard told in full the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel— but in the day, while Merry and Pippin were out and about, Frodo and Sam were to be found with Bilbo in his own small room. Then Bilbo would read passages of his book, which still seemed very incomplete, or scraps of his verses, or would take notes on Frodo's adventures. On the morning of the last day, Frodo was alone with Bilbo, and the old hobbit pulled out from under his bed a wooden box. He lifted the lid and fumbled inside. "'Here is your sword,' he said. "'But it was broken, you know. I took it to keep it safe, but I've forgotten to ask if the smiths could mend it.' No time now. So I thought, perhaps you would care to have this, don't you know? He took from the box a small sword in an old shabby leathern scabbard. Then he drew it, and its polished and well-tended blade glittered suddenly cold and bright. This is Sting, he said, and thrust it with little effort deep into a wooden beam. Take it, if you like. I shan't want it again, I expect. Heroes and Bards calls out one of the things that I love here, and oh, so does Becca Eller. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> Heroes and Bards calls out, this passage is chilling, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. It's pretty good. And Becca says, it's the naming of things. Tolkien knows what I showed up for. Yes, we must never ignore the giving of a name in the pages of Tolkien's work. That is going to be particularly true when we get to the Silmarillion, where we get a whole lot of it. But the renaming of the sword that was broken is enormously powerful. Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Anduril, Flame of the West. And we must note here that, that Tolkien clarifies in his letters that the West here does not mean the Undying Lands. We are not talking about the West in the way that we often talk about the West in, in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. This is not the mythical and immortal West beyond the sea. This is actually Eregion. This is Arnor. This is the West of the Misty Mountains. This is here. 
This is not the flame of some distant hope. This is the flame of this land that we are going to carry into Mordor. It's enormously powerful. In those last days, the hobbits sat together in the evening in the Hall of Fire, and there among many tales they heard told in full the, the lay of Baron and Luthien and the winning of the great jewel. But in the day, while Merry and Pippin were out and about, Frodo and Sam were to be found with Bilbo in his own small room. We're drawing direct contrast here between the telling of the great stories of Baron and Luthien, maybe the, the most important single story in all of Tolkien's creation. You know, certainly one of the stories that was most dear to his heart and the telling of Bilbo's story. The sharing of these stories and the sharing of these verses is of vital importance. Oh, and to clarify here, uh, Aragorn and Gandalf pondering the storied and figured maps. In this instance, I think storied and figured means like annotated and illustrated. You know, you, you're getting more information than just the map itself. Storied and figured. I would read that as annotated and, and illustrated. Yes. Shane Diener says, a renaming with Anduril and an introduction with Sting. I love the the reintroduction of sting then he drew it and with uh, and its polished and well-tended blade glittered suddenly cold and bright this is sting he said and thrust it with little effort deep into a wooden beam take it if you like i shan't want it again i expect bilbo acknowledging that it was that his journey is is coming to an end here yeah. And Jackie says, again and again we're reminded that arnor's a pretty big deal even though it stands in ruins yes it absolutely is you know this is this is the blood in Aragorn's veins. This is, you know, and, and it's no coincidence that when we are reminded that Arnor is a big damn deal, that we often get that full title for Aragorn. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And sometimes we get the full Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir to Isildur. You know, we get the full title because we're talking about the legacy of the Dunedain. We're talking about, you know, the 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 burden, I suppose, that Aragorn carries, but also the glory that he carries. Yeah. So now we have our fellowship. As I say, this takes place on the 18th of, of December 3018, but we are not done yet. We have a poem. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be, when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before, and listen for returning feet and voices at the door. This is... One of the saddest poems that we're going to get in the entire Lord of the Rings. This is so, I mean, narratively speaking, unnecessarily heartbreaking, Professor Tolkien. Like, you did not need to do this to us right now. I understand that you want to give Bilbo his moment and you want to communicate the the intensity of his emotion here. But good Lord, we're building a fellowship and we're going to war, by the way. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is going to war on the, the marches of Mordor. But first, we're going to take a moment to comment on Bilbo getting old and, and wondering about what the world ahead will be like. What will happen there? This is a beautifully composed poem. It is composed in that same Hobbit meter that we get. You know, the last line especially is called out here by, by Art. And Skipa says, this poem breaks my heart. Yes, no, absolutely. 
I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been. Here we're associating Bilbo. Now, remember, this is Bilbo who writes this song. This is Bilbo, or, or writes this poem, who reads this poem, who recites this piece. This is Bilbo. And what do we see? What is the, the content of the poem? What is the subject of the poem? I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Where is the kettle singing happily? Where is the bacon and the bathtub and the second breakfast? Where is the pipeweed and the smoke rings and the comfort that we have hitherto associated with basically every Hobbit song? Even the road goes ever on and on, references that comfort because it's drawing us from home or, or to home, depending on the version of that poem that we get. This is in the Hobbit meter, but it doesn't feel like a Hobbit poem, except for the present tense. I sit beside the fire and think. Bilbo is having a Hobbit experience. He is sitting in comfort and thinking. And that's a pleasant thing for hobbits. We know that that's a pleasant thing for hobbits. But what he's thinking of is not his direct hobbitish experience. He's thinking of the natural world. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. Colon, crucially, at the end of that line, colon, continuing thought, in every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. So look at how this poem breaks into, while it's divided into six stanzas, it actually breaks into three parts, each of which begins with, I sit beside the fire and think. We get the repetition there in the first, the third, and the fifth stanza, right? The first one, I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been of yellow leaves and gossamer. This is great. I'm just sitting by the fire and thinking. I'm just remembering, like, cool things that happen to me. I'm thinking of meadow flowers and butterflies and morning mist and silver sun. I'm just thinking of these things. That's all, that's all that I'm doing now. Then, shift, second stanza, I sit, or second, you know, part, I, I suppose stanzas three and four. I sit beside the fire and think, that same repetition, so we're getting the rhythm here, and we might expect a recapitulation of the first verse, but that's not what we get, of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. We're throwing forward now. I'm thinking back on the things that I've experienced, and now I'm thinking about the things that will happen after I'm gone, because my role is ending. My, my part in the world is coming to an end. And then we transition into the third part of the poem. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. So the first half of the last part of the poem is kind of bringing together that past and present, we're uh, that, that past and future, I guess. And in so doing, we're focusing on the capital R, capital P, Rivendell present. You know, the idea that Rivendell is timelessness because the present is emphasized. He's here now. He's thinking about the past and he's thinking about the future. But then in the last stanza, but all the while I sit and think of times there were before, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. I'm still anchored in the present. I'm thinking about the adventures that I've had. And I'm thinking about what the world will be like when I am no longer in it. But really what I'm doing is listening. I'm listening for the return of, of eager feet, right? To borrow from his previous poem. I'm, I'm listening for friendly voices. I'm listening for community and connection and intimacy and, and news even and stories and song and all of the things that make life worthwhile here in Rivendell, this community of Rivendell.
Jenna asks in the YouTube chat, do you think that Bilbo has become influenced by the elves and all the time he spent with them? Yes, I absolutely do. I think that this is, though it is in the Hobbit meter, this is an elven poem. This would not feel, I think, out of place. Well, okay, maybe in Rivendell, right? <laughs> maybe here in Rivendell we wouldn't quite get this, but I could imagine, you know, the, the Tralalalolly elves would give us some version of and, and drawing the distinction here between, you know, the, the great and high elves here, or, or Gilder might give us a version of this. But yes, I, I think this is Elven. It's, gosh, it's so beautiful. Art says in the YouTube chat, this is a nice farewell to Bilbo's character. He is at peace, at rest, and yet a bittersweet pang for the things he leaves unfinished and what he might leave behind. And I think that there's something to that, right? We ought not to be too ready for death because in a sense to be ready for death to be completely accepting of death is to assert that the world no longer holds interest for us and to be deprived of that curiosity to be deprived of that desire of that joy and of that openness i mean remember how back in our very first session in on fairy stories tolkien talks about the value of recovery talks about the value of awe and wonder and curiosity that these things are of vital importance and are given to us anew by fantasy fiction, by stories, it would be a tragedy for Bilbo to sit and recite a poem where he says, well, as I sit by the fire, I'm actually quite content because I've done pretty much everything. Uh, let me check my checklist. Yeah, no, I'm done. I got all the achievements. I've uh, been everywhere, so uh, I can probably die peaceful now. That would be terribly sad. We don't want that for Bilbo. We want him to still have that that longing, because that longing bespeaks a joy. It bespeaks uh, a recognition of the beauty of the world. And we should perhaps die just a little unsatisfied, you know, knowing that there is more out there and that the world will continue in beauty and wonder and grandeur and splendor beyond the bounds of our mortal life. Bilbo is content. He is by the fire. That is the Hobbit, you know, kind of icon of comfort there. He is sitting by the fire thinking about these things, but there is still that slight dissatisfaction. I find that beautiful. Oh, as Trig says here in the YouTube chat, are you saying do not go gentle? Uh, no, maybe go gentle, but do not go completely satisfied would be the way to go. <laughs> go remembering that there are other things here that are good. And Trig points out too, on the other hand, elves don't experience old age. Now, this is true. Elves do, it would seem, age. That is to say that there is a sense in which maturity is or, or has at least some kind of physical consequence for elves. They, they are aware of the passage, physically aware of the passage of years in some sense, though it isn't entirely clear. But how many people have died of old age in Rivendell? Probably not many. Probably not many, right? Bilbo's going to be one of the first. And Bilbo's case, we must remember, is completely exceptional. He's the ring bearer here. He was extended. He was stretched out like, like butter spread over too much bread, as he says. You know, he, do, he isn't given more life. It's just that the life that he had was, was dragged out. And now that he has yielded up the ring, that is catching up with him. You know, his natural life is running out. But presumably, it is no longer spread over too much bread. Now it is pure. Now it is, you know... Like eating a spoonful of butter, I suppose, is where that metaphor inevitably takes you, but that's a bad place, and please don't do that. It's it's like adequately buttered bread. Let's put it that way. Or like a like a good Alvin scone, I suppose. Good. All right. 
<laughs> Bilbo has been, yes, as Jennifer says in the, in the YouTube chat here, Bilbo has been stretched beyond natural hobbit time, yes. And Nikki quotes, death is but the next great adventure. Good. Shane notes, this is a really great perspective. I like this a lot. So instead of wondering at how much Bilbo has changed, it would be more remarkable that he is very much acting like a hobbit. Hobbits are made of stern stuff. Yes, that's absolutely true. Hobbits have a huge sense of their own identity right, of their personal identity and their kind of cultural identity. Hobbits are hobbits, and they are hobbits no matter what. Here they are in Rivendell, you know, in the last homely house. Here they are consorting with the great and the good, with literal kings of men. I mean, you know, kings of men when we get to, you know, the reclamation of a throne, perhaps. And, and elven princes and, and dwarven nobles and the great and the good, literally the greatest and, in fact, the goodest, are all here at the Council of Elrond, and the hobbits are still hobbits. And we know that Bilbo has been hanging out with Elrond in the time since he came to Rivendell, in the 17 years since he came to Rivendell. He's been hanging out with Elrond. He's learned a great deal of lore. He's written a lot of poetry. He's been hanging out with Aragorn. He's not impressed by that. Hey, heir of Isildur, you know, the returning king. Cool. Come help me write my poem. Come, come tell me why I need to have a green gem in my poem about Arendel. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Okay. We must, gosh, I have so much more ground to cover, you guys. I got talking about the poem, didn't I? And that is devouring my evening here. Okay, farewells, finally, farewells. Their farewells had been said in the great hall by the fire, and they were only waiting now for Gandalf, who had not yet come out of the house. A gleam of firelight came from the open doors, and soft lights were glowing in many windows. Bilbo, huddled in a cloak, stood silent on the doorstep beside Frodo. Aragorn sat with his head bowed to his knees. Only Elrond knew fully what this hour meant to him. The others could be seen as grey shapes in the darkness. Sam was standing by the pony, sucking his teeth and staring moodily into the gloom where the river roared stonily below. His desire for adventure was at its lowest ebb. "'Bill, my lad,' he said, "'you oughtn't to have took up with us. You should have stayed here and had all the best hay till the new grass comes.' Bill swished his tail and said nothing. Sam eased the pack on his shoulders and went over anxiously in his mind all the things that he had stowed in it, wondering if he had forgotten anything." His chief treasure, his cooking gear, and the little box of salt he always carried and refilled when he could, a good supply of pipeweed, but not near enough, I'll warrant, flint and tinder, woolen hose, linen, various small belongings of his masters that Frodo had forgotten and Sam had stowed to bring them out in triumph when they were called for, he went through them all. Rope, he muttered, no rope, and only last night you said to yourself, Sam, what about a bit of rope, you'll want it if you haven't got it, well I'll want it, I can't get it now. When did et become eight, says Nikki? Uh, the evolution of Middle English, basically. Um, <laughs> that is, is representative of, uh, of uh, yeah, Sam's odd little dialect that he gets here. A moment of heroism for Sam. Here he is on the eve of great adventure. We've got the contrast here. Bilbo, huddled in a cloak, stood silent on the doorstep beside Frodo. Okay, so we've got our two hobbits, our two protagonists, our two ring bearers here, huddled together in silence. We've got Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, sitting with his head bowed to his knees. Only Elrond knew fully what this hour meant to him. Elrond, of course, has known Aragorn more, has known Aragorn longer than anyone else who is present. He's known Aragorn longer even than Gandalf because when Aragorn was a child he was basically fostered in Rivendell so El uh, Elrond has known Aragorn for what 80 years now at this point the others could be seen as grey shapes in the, in the darkness and then we close up tight on Sam and we get Sam's perspective so much that we get some ungainly adjectives here Sam was standing by the pony sucking his teeth and staring moodily into the gloom where the river roared stonily below that sounds to me like Sam. 
staring moodily into the gloom where the river roared stonily below. A river roaring stonily, in particular, sounds like sounds like Sam to me. I love that. His desire for adventure was at its lowest ebb. And he talks to the pony. He talks to Bill. Bill, my lad, you oughtn't to have took up with us. You could have stayed here and at the best hay till the new grass comes. He wants Bill to have a quiet, peaceful life too, even though there's no thought of himself here, right? He's not thinking... Sam, you fool, you should have stayed here and you could have ate the best hay until the new grass comes. You could have stayed with the elves. Elves, sir, you could have stayed with the elves and it would have been wonderful. No, he's resolved. There's no question of his commitment, even though he's fearful of what comes. And then we look at his treasures here, his most prized possessions. We get his cooking gear, of course, a little box of salt, of course, a good supply of pipeweed, of course, flint and tinder, wooden hose, linen. So we're getting a little more practical here, a little less hobbity and a little more, you know, adventure And then various small belongings of his masters that Frodo had forgotten and Sam had stowed to bring them out in triumph when they were called for. He just wants to be a good servant. He just wants to serve his master well. And if he can serve his master well by having Frodo think for a moment that he has forgotten something only to realize that he has not forgotten something because Sam took care of it, that's enormously powerful. That's Sam fulfilling his function in a greater even in a greater sense because that delta between, oh, damn, I needed that thing that I had back in Rivendell and I left it there. And Sam says, oh, no, you didn't. And he brings it out. That delta between, you know, regret or frustration and, and joy, fulfillment, that makes his performance as servant all the better for Frodo. It's just, just wonderful. And then, of course, yes, rope. Let's all remember that Sam has some rope. Might be necessary later. At that moment, Elrond came out with Gandalf and he called the company to him. This is my last word, he said in a low voice. The ring-bearer is setting out on, his quest, on the quest of Mount Doom. On him alone is any charge laid, neither to cast away the ring nor to deliver it to any servant of the enemy, nor indeed to let any handle it, save members of the company and the council, and only then in gravest need. The others go with him as free companions to help him on his way. You may tarry, or come back, or turn aside into other paths as chance allows. The further you go, the less easy will it be to withdraw, Yet no oath or bond is laid on you to go further than you will, for you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens, said Gimli. Maybe, said Arond, but let him not vow to walk in the dark who has not seen the nightfall. Yet sworn words may strengthen quaking heart, said Gimli. Or break it, said Arond. Look not too far ahead. But go now with good hearts. Farewell, and may the blessings of elves and men and all free folk go with you. May the stars shine upon your faces. Good, good, good luck, cried Bilbo, stuttering with the cold. I don't suppose you'll be able to keep a diary, Frodo, my lad, but I shall expect a full account when you get back, and don't be too long. Farewell. Lynn calls out in the YouTube chat, my favorite thing about this slide, love the competing sayings. I adore this so much. This little proverb off that we get between Elrond and Gimli. Faithless is he that says, fair, that says farewell when the road darkens. Maybe, but let him not walk to, vow to walk in the darkness who has not seen the nightfall. Yet swarm worm may strengthen quaking heart or break it. We're getting this little, you know, aphorism off at dawn here as we're getting ready to leave. But what is much more important is that there is no oath placed upon the fellowship. There is, it would seem, an implicit oath placed upon Frodo, but it is a charge not to give up the ring or to give it up only to members of the company or to the council in gravest need. 
But apart from that, this is your charge, Frodo. You are responsible for this. The ring bearer is setting out on the quest of Mount Doom. On him alone is any charge laid. And note, the charge is not go to Mount Doom and destroy the ring. That's what you're doing. But the charge is on him alone is any charge laid. Colon. Again, this is exposition. Neither to cast away the ring, nor to deliver it to any servant of the enemy, nor indeed to let any handle it, save members of the company and the council, and only then in gravest need. That is the charge that is upon you, Frodo. You might fail, you might falter, you might not make it to Mount Doom, but you will not give up all that is happening here. You, you will not, you know, surrender this ring into, into the, the hands of the enemy. The others go with him as free companions to help him on his way. Tarry, come back, turn aside into other paths as chance allows. Now, partly, partly this is foreshadowing, right? Because we want our heroes to be heroic and we don't want them to break, uh, break oaths in order to do what must be done later in the story. Spoilers, I guess, for the end of the, the Fellowship of the Ring and the beginning of the Two Towers, the Fellowship does not stay together forever, they have other tasks and other paths in front of them. So we're specifically not binding them with oaths because the breaking of an oath would be a, a sacred thing. You know, that would be a, a grave matter indeed. In fact, the breaking of oaths is going to be enormously significant later in the story. So we're specifically calling this out. No, we are not binding you with oaths. You are free to do as you will. But much more importantly, we're not binding you with oaths because you are free. The further you go, the less easy it will be to withdraw. Yet no oath or bond is laid upon you to go further than you will. For you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresay, foresee what each may meet upon the road. It's lovely. And then we get the opposition of our farewells, of course. But go now with good hearts, says Elrond. Farewell, and may the blessing of elves and men and all free folk go with you. May the stars shine upon your faces. Contrast that with Bilbo. Good, good luck. I don't suppose you'll be able to keep a diary, Frodo, my lad, but I shall expect a full account when you get back, and don't be too long. Farewell. The blessings of all the free people of Middle-earth, and may the stars shine on your faces. If you could just take some notes, and then, you know, give me the full rundown when you get... The, the, it, it'll be fine. Don't take too long. It'll be good. It's really super cute. Yes. Yes. And a few of you are, are <laughs> Jackie Bowman says, Elrond's relationships to the Oath of Feanor's sons is so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about oaths by the time we get to the summer early, and let me tell you, yes. Um, good, good. Oh, Lorna says, don't be too long. Is he worried he won't be around when they get back? Possibly. I mean, we just heard that he's, you know, aware of his own mortality, Uh He's, you know, thinking about death and the fact that there will be a world of which he is not a part. But I read that as a, as a sign of his, you know, casual kind of playfulness. It's like, okay, off you go to, to Mount Doom, you know, have, have fun storming the castle. This is like his little playful, okay, this is no big deal. I'm not going to weep now or, you know, wrap myself around Gandalf's legs and prevent him from going. We're just going to, you know, do what we can. Okay, I'm very close to time and we have one, two three, gosh, four, five. Okay, we've got a lot of slides left to go, you guys. All right. You know what? Next week is supposed to be a shorter session, so we'll I think we'll just call this with maybe one more, and then we'll uh, then we'll pick up. <laughs> Ian Mann says, just give me the froze notes version when you get back. Yeah, if you could just, you know, gloss your experience for me, Frodo, that would be great. If you could just write it on a couple Post-it cards, that'd be awesome. Okay, good. 
Let's get into our discussion. This is this is so rich, and forgive me in advance for stumbling over some of the pronunciation here, because this is our discussion of our course here. I need no map, said Gimli, who had come up with Legolas and was gazing out before him with a strange light in his deep eyes. It is the land where our fathers worked of old, and we have wrought the image of these mountains into many works of metal and stone, and into many songs and tales. They stand tall in our dreams, Baraz, Zerak, Shathur. Only once before have I seen them from afar in waking life, but I know them and their names. For under them lies Kazadum, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit, Moria in the Elvish tongue. Yonder stands Barinzabar, the Redhorn, cruel Carathras, and beyond him are Silvertine and Cloudy Head, Calibdil the White, and Fenuathol <laughs> the Grey, that we call Zarak Zagil, and Bundes. Good Lord. Bundes Hathor. There, are misty, there the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lie the, sh- the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget, as in Ulbazar, the Dimral Dale, which the elves call Nandahirion. It is for the Dimral Gate... Excuse me. It is for the Dimral Dale that we are making, said Gandalf. If we climb the pass that is called the Redhorn Gate under the far side of Carathras, then we shall come down by the Dimral Stale into the deep, the deep vale of the dwarves. There lies the Miromir, and there the river Silverload rises in its icy springs. Dark is the water of Khaled's arm, said Gimli, and cold are the springs of Kibilnala. My heart trembles at the thought that I might see them soon. May you have joy of the sight, my good dwarf, said Gandalf. But whatever you may do, we at least cannot stay in that valley. We must go down the silver road into the secret woods and so to the great river, and then... He paused. Yes? And where then? asked Mary. To the end of the journey. In the end, said Gandalf... We cannot look too far ahead. Let us be glad that the first stage is safely over. I think we will rest here, not only today, but tonight as well. There is a wholesome air about Holin. Much evil must befall a country before it wholly forgets the elves, if once they dwelt there. That is true, said Legolas. But the elves of this land were of a race strange to us of the sylvan folk, and the trees and the grass do not now remember them. Only I hear the stones lament them. Deep they delved us, fair they wrought us, high they builded us, but they are gone. They are gone. They sought the havens long ago. <laughs> Three peaks, nine names, says old Toby. Yes, it is quite formidable. And we could delve deep into this, but we're going to have to gloss this just a little. Uh, let's talk, I suppose. Well, let's pick out a couple of names first, okay? Let's pick out Kazadum, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit Moria in the Elvish tongue. This is going to be significant. Kazadum, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit Moria in the Elvish tongue. Dwaro here is an interesting word. Dwaro is the correct Anglo-Saxon pluralization of dwarf. That is to say you would have one dwarf to Dwaro. That would be the, the, the correct pluralization. It was dismissed by Tolkien as a pluralization for more than one dwarf because and enjoy this because this may be the only time that it is true in all of Tolkien's work, he thought it was too archaic. He thought that it was too old-fashioned to use Dwaro as the, the pluralization here. Dwarfs with an F was the standard English plural at the time, but Tolkien used dwarves, which has now become the default in modern English. Dwarves with a V, the V-E-S ending. And I should say, Actually, at this point, because I am I am horribly lax in this. I was listening back to uh, to one of the earlier sessions that we did um, to remember what it was that I had said about an incidental detail that would be relevant to next week's reading. Um, 
because hey, some of the stuff is improvised, you guys. Uh, I, I realized that I was pretty lax in this, so I wanted to clarify. Elven and dwarven are the adjectives associated with things related to elves and dwarves. Here is an elven sword. Here is a dwarven helm. The elven and dwarven are the adjectives meaning of or belonging to the elves and the dwarves. Elvish and dwarvish are both the adjectival form and the noun form of things related to the languages of those races. That is the, the elvish name for something or the dwarvish name for something, the dwarvish word for something. The dwarvish name is Kazadum. The elvish name is Moria. So elven and dwarven for of or belonging to the elves or dwarves, elvish or dwarvish of or belonging to the language of the elves and the dwarves. I am horribly lax with that. I am, I am terribly inconsistent with that, but I will do my best. Um, so we've got a couple here. Dwarodelf, as I just said, that, that simply means uh, the delvings of the dwarves. It's, it's another one of Tolkien's fab fabulous literal names here. The other one that really stands out there the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget as a Nulbazar, the Dimral Dale, which the elves call Nanduhirian. The Battle of Azanulbazar has been mentioned in There and Back Again before, because the Battle of Azanulbazar was the last battle in the last war between the dwarves and the orcs. This is where uh, Azog, the... the Orc of, of Moria mutilates Thror, the king of, of you know, Thorin's people much later. Um, it is pretty bad. This, this is the battle, by the way. The Battle of Azanobazar is the battle where Thorin loses his shield and takes up the oaken club that he uses as a shield. Thus, Thorin Oaken Shield. This was two centuries ago. This is one of the most important battles in all of Dwarven history, and it's described here. That's, that's the, uh, the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget as an Bazaar. That's why we cannot forget it, because that is where the Battle of Azanul Bazaar took place, which the elves call Nanduherian. Some fan. Fantastic names here, by the way, just fantastic names. And as you say, we get three names for each mountain, three names for each of the three peaks that lay above Kazadum. So we get um, Barazinbar, the Red Horn, Cruel Karathras. Those are, that, that's one peak there. Barazinbar, there, the, uh, the dwarven name, the Red Horn being the common tongue name, and Cruel Karathras being the Sindarin name. Beyond him, Silvertine and Cloudyhead. Those are obviously the common names. Celebdil the White and Fanuathol the Grey. These are the elven names. These are the, the Sindarin names that we call Zerak Zagil and Bundus Hathor. These are the dwarven names. So we get the dwarven names, the Sindarin names, and the common tongue names for each of the three peaks that lay above Kazadum. It's, oh, it's wonderful. It's so evocative. And this all speaks to the the illusion of depth that I was discussing earlier. This actually is the quote that I pulled from, uh, from Tolkien's letters on exactly this subject. Tolkien wrote uh, in letter 257, for those of you with the book, part of the attraction of the Lord of the Rings is, I think, due to the glimpses of a large history in the background, an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in the sunlit mist. To go there is to destroy the magic unless new unattainable vistas are again revealed. That's the trick here, right? It's this illusion of depth, illusion of distance, illusion of magnitude. We gesture towards so many of these things, and in the giving of names, we're not just, we're not just adding a detail 
to the world, but we're getting effectively three perspectives on that detail, right? When we give something three names, we are saying, no, no, this is important enough that it is true of the men, it is true of the dwarves, and it is true of the elves. They see these things differently, and thus we get these perspectives. I, I absolutely love the way that, that this works out. And there is perhaps no better example, particularly given that, you know, an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlit mist, how appropriate that we should be looking here at the peaks above Kazadum, the, the, the peaks that, that cap the, the Dwarodalf, the, the black pit of Moria now. It's pretty amazing. I'm kind of passionate about it, as you can probably tell. Okay. Yes, three names, plus the abbreviations Linda's calling out in the YouTube chat here, plus the abbreviations Baraz, Zirak, and Shathor. Yes, absolutely. So we get kind of four names for each. These are the casual names. They stand tall in our dreams, Baraz, Zirak, Shathor. And I also wanted to call that, since I'm, 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 going, to, uh, I'm going to wrap up here, I think, and, and we'll move into the confrontation with Karathras in next week's session. Let's take a moment and look at that first chapter. There is the land where our fathers worked of old, and we have wrought the image of those mountains into many works of metal and of stone, and into many songs and tales. You see the way that those two ideas are connected within the dwarven mind? We have taken these images and worked them into metal and into stone and into songs and into tales. These things are all products of dwarven craft. They are not artistry in the way that elven songs are artistry or hobbit songs even are a kind of albeit you know fairly workaday fairly prosaic artistry right if if elven songs are high art and hobbit songs are pop music then dwarven songs are i don't know electronica you know they're like they're like dubstep they are crafted things dwarves don't write in flowing calligraphic script their songs they craft them as they craft metal and stone and that's absolutely reflected in all the songs that we get go back and look at you know the misty mountains cold go back and look at the examples of elven songs that we got early in the hobbit too even tralala lolly which may not feel like high art but is kind of in a sense that's where we are we're getting the embodiment of these three primary races here and I say three primary races because really the songs of men are generally co-opted versions of the songs of elves. You know, Aragorn just knows a bunch of, of elven songs and elvish songs too, to differentiate between the adjective meaning of the elves and of the elven language. Um, <laughs> Aragorn knows those songs, but also when we get, you know, songs of men, generally they're pretty close to the hobbits. There's, there's a lot of crossover there. So that's where I would draw it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Jenna says here, um, yes, uh, Heroes and Bard says, Kazadum sounds weird to my ears with that bridge in front of it. Yeah, me too. Me too. And if you're a fan of the seminal 1990s science fiction series Babylon 5, then it may also sound weird to you because it was all but reused in that series. The place where the shadows lie, you know, Babylon 5 owes a significant debt to the Lord of the Rings, which is one of the things that makes it such an interesting text. But the origin, the planet of origin for the shadows, the the great enemy in Babylon 5 is Zahadum, taken literally from Kazadum. It's, we're, we're deliberately drawing that echo there. I like that very much. Little random Babylon 5 reference thrown in there for you. Okay, let's see here. That I think is going to do it. That I think is where we are going to wrap up. Uh, Jenna Katz says, there are so many instances in the Hebrew Bible where someone or somewhere gets a new name because of something that happened there or something someone did. Yes, 
this renaming of things, the, the notion of naming is so important in all our sacred texts, you know, um, and, and is, I mean, let's not forget that that was Adam's purpose, you know, in the garden, in, in, you know, Christian theology, that was Adam's purpose, was to go into the garden and to name things, not just to name them in a creative way, but to name them because of his understanding of their nature. He would discern their names and then give them names. So when we name things, it is oftentimes a reflection of our discernment of their nature. When we rename, you know, the sword that was broken, Narsil, when we rename the sword that was broken um, and, and, and kind of give it a new purpose, it is more than just, well, now this is an even cooler sword. It's, it's the flame of the West. It means something new now. And that's the purpose of the renaming. As I said, we'll get a lot of renaming when we get to uh, the Silmarillion. But that, I'm afraid, I have, a, I have a heart out tonight. So that is going to do it. We will pick up with Karathras and all of Chapter 5. Let me uh, cancel that slide for now and move on because I want to show you what we're going to cover next week. It's always the case that if I make a big fuss about we're going to cover a specific event, that we will definitely not get to that event in, in the reading. So we're not going to get to Karathras this week. We're just slowing down as we move forward here. But this is going to be next week's reading, the back half of chapter three, and then chapter four, a journey in the dark as we delve deep into Moria and discover the fate of Balin, late of Thorin's company in chapter four of the second book of the Fellowship of the Ring. Next week, you'll see we're going to run the live session at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. That is going to be true of both the live sessions next week and maybe true of all the live sessions for the next few weeks. Uh, my schedule is very complicated. So I'm trying to formalize everything rather than move it around and have it happening at, at 10 a.m. Eastern or 11 a.m. Eastern or 1 p.m. Eastern or, you know, complicated times that are difficult to parse into other time zones. We're going to pretty much formalize most of the live broadcasts to 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central for the next couple of weeks. I know that is wildly inconvenient for those of you in European time zones. I can apologize for that, but we're going to try and, this is going to be for the next couple of weeks, and then I'm going to try and do a few daytime sessions again and, and draw everyone and good thing I'm back in the U.S., says Leslie Skipa. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Uh, Lorna Jane says, short means 90 minutes, right? Uh, yeah, I know. It's I always foresee a short session, and then it turns out not to be. And of course, uh, for those of you who have read ahead, there's quite a lot to discuss in, uh, in A Journey in the Dark, and then, of course, much more to discuss in Chapter 5. But luckily, Chapter 5, though it is vitally important is very brief. It is a very short chapter. So if the worst comes to the worst, we'll be able to catch up two weeks from now and kind of get ourselves back on our regular schedule. That will do it, though, for this session. Guys, thank you so, so much for joining me here tonight. This has been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure. As I say, didn't get as far as I wanted to, but we had a great discussion along the way. And hey, in the end, isn't it the journey that's important? I'll be back next week to talk about the rest of this chapter and chapter four. We'll get through it all in good time. Until then, take care. Good night.